Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. The Appearance Psychology podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia, and today we're delighted to be able to share with you a slightly abridged version of Harvard Professor Bryn Austin's keynote address from our recent conference, Appearance Matters 7. The keynote is titled Accelerating Progress in the Prevention of Body Dissatisfaction, a call for policy translation research and training. Professor Bryn Austin will be introduced by Associate Professor Philippa Diedrichs from the Centre for Appearance Research, who is also one of the conference's co-chairs. Dr S. Bryn Austin is an award-winning researcher, teacher and mentor. She is a professor in the Department of Social and Behavioural Sciences at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health, and the Department of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Across her roles at Harvard and Boston Children's Hospital, she is Director of Fellowship Research Training in the Division of Adolescent and Young Adult Medicine, Director of the Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders, a Public Health Incubator, and Director of the Sexual Orientation and Gender Identity and Expression Working Group. Bryn is a social epidemiologist and behavioral scientist. A unifying goal of her academic career has been to advance innovations in transdisciplinary science applied to eating disorders prevention and the study of health inequities adversely affecting sexual minority and transgender youth. Uniquely in the field of eating disorders, Bryn brings a public health and policy perspective to the table. She has written seminal papers on the benefits of using public health and policy approaches to upscale and rapidly advance the progress of the prevention of body dissatisfaction and eating disorders. In the words of our esteemed colleague, Professor Susan Paxton, in addition to being the warmest, most generous colleague, Bryn is the international leader in public health and policy interventions to prevent body dissatisfaction, using education and legislation as levers. She has brought about real change through translation and dissemination of research to policy. Some examples of Bryn's research, often funded by the US National Institutes of Health and published in over 165 peer-reviewed articles, include the evaluation of a nutrition and physical activity intervention delivered in middle schools across the state of Massachusetts, which is now being distributed in more than 20 countries around the world, the US National Prospective Cohort Study, the Growing Up Today Study, which looks at factors that affect health throughout the life course, and a nationwide screening program for eating disorders, which is in over 100 secondary schools throughout the US. Importantly, in addition to her research interests and achievements, to many students and junior researchers in the field, Bryn is a generous and inspiring mentor and teacher. In fact, Bryn not only inspires junior researchers in the field. Professor Michael Levine, who some of you will know as the grandfather of eating disorders prevention, shared with me, if I had to do it all again, I would choose public health as my field and I would pray for a chance to be mentored by Britain. Professor Diane Newmark-Steiner from Minnesota University, another leading light in the field of eating disorder prevention and body image research, shared with me. The work that Bryn and the Stripe team are doing is innovative, daring, cutting edge and so important. She's addressing eating disorders from a public health perspective, which is just what we need. She has taken eating disorders prevention to a whole different level in moving beyond the classroom into the offices of lawmakers, pharmacies, the fashion world and the world of weight bullying. She's ahead of the curve, so keep your eyes on her to know where we are going next. As you may have gathered, Bryn's colleagues, students and mentees hold her in the highest esteem and it is a true honour to have her here with us this evening in London. 
Please welcome Dr. S. Bryn Austin to deliver her keynote address, Accelerating Progress in Prevention of Body Dissatisfaction, a call for policy, translation, research, and training. Thank you very much for that very generous introduction, Philippa. I am so excited to be here at the conference today. This is my first Appearance Matters conference, and the program is just stunning. So as Philippa introduced, I'll be talking about some ideas uh, for accelerating progress in the prevention of body dissatisfaction. So as a preview of my presentation, I'm going to be talking a bit about the work we've been doing in Striped. As Philippa mentioned, as this is my program, Strategic Training Initiative for the Prevention of Eating Disorders uh, based at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and Boston Children's Hospital, and this is a training and research program. Our mission is to train the next generation of health professionals to harness the power of public health to prevent eating disorders and related problems with food, weight, and appearance. We strive to create a world where girls and boys alike and people of all genders can grow up at home in their own bodies. So overview of my presentation will be in three parts. For the first part, I'll address the question that given that we've had many successes in the prevention of body dissatisfaction, why not just stay the course and continue doing what we've already been doing? And, and to delve into that question, I'll, I'll look at what have we and what have we not achieved in the last 30 years of research. Then for the second part of my talk, I'll tackle the question, how can we accelerate progress? If I'm going to argue that we need to, then there needs to be some plan of how we can do that. And what I'm going to provide for you is an argument for why we need to shift our priorities to policy translation and training. And then for the third part of my talk, I will address the question, what does acceleration look like? For that, I'll give you concrete examples from the STRIPE program of a number of our projects that we've taken on that are all about trying to accelerate progress. And finally, I will leave you a question for you to think about in your own research. So for part one of my talk, everybody here knows how important body dissatisfaction is for public health and for society. Often it's referred to as negative thoughts or feelings about one's own body or appearance. Body dissatisfaction is highly influenced by the cultural environment and is strongly associated with eating disorders risk. And both are linked to many comorbidities and consequences. And these consequences affect both health and social life, and they are very wide-ranging, really affecting all aspects of social life and systems of the body, from lost work and educational productivity to reduce quality of life to money spent on, whether that's money spent on binge foods or on laxatives, diet pills, on UV tanning, steroids, cosmetic procedures. That's a lot of money that's not spent on more helpful goal-achieving pursuits. There's persistent gender disparities comorbid medical and mental health conditions, uh, comorbidities with substance use, and chronic activation of the stress response. All of these in some way can be consequences of body dissatisfaction, eating disorders, and related problems. So now I'll turn to the prevention research, uh, which really has been ongoing for about 30 years. We have several decades of solid research that uh, we've been able to accumulate over the years. There's well over 100 published interventions. They, some are universal, some are selected, indicated prevention for children, for teens, for adults, many targeted directly at body dissatisfaction and also related approaches address self-esteem, thin ideal internalization, media literacy, and lots more. 
And through this body of research and these interventions, there have been many notable and replicated successes. A lot of good work has been done in the field, absolutely. So why not just stay the course? Why would I not just come here and say we're on the right path, we've got so many successes? What has been done in the last 30 years, I think, is where we're going to get an answer to that of why not stay the course. So what has been done in prevention over the last 30 years? And I want to take a closer look at what types of prevention have been tried and also how has the macro environment been considered. So what types of prevention have been tried so far? Almost all of the interventions have been efficacy or early stage studies and only a tiny number of them have been effectiveness or dissemination studies. Almost all have been individually targeted. It is extremely rare for these interventions to target the macro environment and include an evaluation component to it. In a recent systematic review from our group uh, examining environmental factors, it included 93 observational studies, so nearly 100 observational studies. Across these studies, we found nine environmental constructs. Among these, more than half defined environment as family, which is important research, absolutely. Almost a quarter defined environment as peer relationships. Another almost 10% focused on media. And then portions of the research looked at behavioral, other behavioral settings, other sociocultural factors, twin environment, or other interpersonal relationships. Zero of the studies examined policy influences or built environment or consumer industries. None of these observational studies included those in their environmental examination. So there have been gaps. 30 years of research, a lot has been done, but there have been some gaps here. The supermajority of the preventive interventions are efficacy, so early stage trials, and individually targeted. Only a tiny minority are effectiveness or dissemination studies or are macro-environmentally targeted. None of the observational studies that we were able to find focused on the effects of policy environment or built environment or consumer industries. So after 30 years, where we're left is that we are still a long way from building a research base on policy or environmental interventions. So now I'll move to the second part of my talk, addressing the question, how can we accelerate progress? And this is where I'm going to provide my argument that we need a shift in priorities to policy translation, research, and training. So when I use the term translation, I'm using it uh, in the framework that's been developed over the last decade plus, ranging from T1 through T4. T1 is typically what's used as shorthand to refer to bench to bedside, the very early stage of translation of, of laboratory research into clinical care. T2, often described briefly as uh, moving from health application to evidence-based clinical guidelines. T3, from guidelines to routine practice in clinical and community settings. And then T4, large-scale public health impact. And this is where my talk is focused today. It's on T4, the large-scale public health impact. So a few examples of T4 might be health services, quality improvement in major healthcare systems, community-based health promotion programs led by government or charities, public policy initiatives, and then what does T4 translation look like? This is what I would argue that it looks like, starting with multi-sectoral partnerships throughout the whole process, from research to funding to advocacy, transdisciplinary research teams. We need our teams to be transdisciplinary to be able to do this work and from the start. Efficacy, RCT, that's what uh, we've seen a lot of. Then effectiveness, RCTs, moving to that, to dissemination, evaluation, ongoing monitoring. We need ongoing feasibility, acceptability, sustainability research. This needs to be happening throughout the process. Economic analysis, 
of the costs and savings of our interventions. We absolutely need that, and that's true for prevention trials. We also need it for treatment trials. We absolutely need the cost to be published whenever you do an intervention, I could say that. And we need macro-level policy research and action. All of this needs to be happening. We've got a lot more work of different kinds that we need to be thinking about doing and filling out our programs. So how do we get there? And before another 30 years go by, we've got people who are being affected every day by the problems of body dissatisfaction and eating disorders and other related problems. Do we want to spend 30 years figuring this out? No, we want to see action happening. We want to see change happening. So what I'm going to walk through next are what I will put forward as keys to accelerating progress that we've learned from other areas of public health. So the first point is that we need our study designs to begin with a focus on the potential for rapid translation. We need to aim to generate evidence that's relevant for practice and relevant for policy uptake. From the start, we need to involve end users, policymakers, transdisciplinary teams. This isn't something that we can add on five years later, ten years later. A second key point, we need alternatives to direct replication RCTs. We need replication across varied settings with varied communities under varied conditions. We need quasi-experimental and multiple cohort RCT designs. We need to keep moving across the spectrum there from efficacy to effectiveness to dissemination research. We need to work in rapid learning and real-world settings. And that might be through public health care, through community and education systems, through primary care networks, and other similar types of large-scale settings. We need simulation modeling. This is a very common method used in climate science, used in economics and decision analysis. It's not so much used in our fields and certainly not in body dissatisfaction or eating disorders. Through the simulation modeling, we can examine the potential effects of policy change, of multiple exposures, of moderators under varied conditions. We need transdisciplinary teams to do this work, absolutely. And this method in particular can accelerate the pace of evidence generation faster than probably almost anything else we can do. And we need economic studies, intervention costs and cost savings, we need studies that can look at the cost effectiveness and do these types of analyses, comparative cost effectiveness across programs, return on investment analyses, and involve policymakers from the start. So for this, as I mentioned before, when you do an intervention, whether it's a preventive intervention or a clinical treatment intervention, publish the costs. That's what we need in order to do this research. It's very rarely included in articles, but it's what we need in order to do the economic analyses. So let's ask ourselves the question, Will this research generate data likely to result in policy or practice improvement in three to five years? So not in my lifetime, not sometime over my career, but in the next three to five years. And if yes, how? How can we make policy action happen? There are three conditions that have been put forward by a colleague of mine, uh, Michelle Mello, was at Harvard, now is at Stanford. Three conditions needed to trigger policy action for prevention. And what she's proposed is that we need, as condition one to trigger policy action, we need the evidentiary base. And that's what we're all very good at as, as scientists. And the evidentiary base she divides into two categories. A, does the science link the exposure to long-term health problems? Can we prove that there's a problem there from the kind of research we're, we're doing? And B, do the economic costs favor prevention? And that is a key question that policymakers ask. The second trigger 
for policy action, practical considerations. How do we operationalize all the many great ideas that folks have into law and policy? And then the third trigger, political will. So where is this issue on the political agenda for voters and policymakers? When we can get all three, this is where we end up. If we can get the evidentiary base, if we can get the practical considerations and hit on the political will, increase our issues up higher on the political agenda, that's when we're going to get our goals, which are, for our group, to maximize public health impact on the problems of body dissatisfaction. So now I'll move to the third part of my talk, and this part is a little longer. And this is where I'll provide some concrete details from the STRIPED program of how we've designed all of our research, all of our projects around the triggers uh, for policy action and using those design methods for accelerating progress whenever we can and they apply to the work. So examples from Trigger 1A, and that's the one that I said was building the evidentiary base on exposures and how they're linked to consequences. We already have a really good science base linking body dissatisfaction to health problems. However, as I described, there are huge gaps still in the science, especially around the macro environment. We need research on the long-term health effects of exposures amenable to regulation. So what are some of these exposures? There are diet pills, there's laxatives, there's dietary supplements sold for weight loss and muscle building are a few examples of our environment. There's UV tanning, there's cosmetic surgery. So thinking about Trigger 1A, building an evidentiary base on the macro environment and macro environmental exposures. So with the STRIPE program, the way that we've approached this is uh, through a study where we are collecting data on each of these areas of the UV tanning, cosmetic surgery across the country. And what we're looking at is the way that these kinds of influences in the macro environment may be affecting health. So as we all know, everyone who's coming to this, this conference thinks about these issues a lot. Societal appearance ideals can be harmful, and that is an understatement, of course. There's strong pressure to modify one's appearance to avoid stigma and discrimination. This stigma and discrimination pervades all sectors of society from education to employment to social relationships to healthcare and beyond. There are industries that profit from these appearance ideals, uh, namely some examples, the cosmetic procedures industry and UV tanning. Good examples of industries that make a great deal of profit off of appearance ideals and fixing imperfections. There's a disparate burden by gender where women are the vast majority of the consumer base for both of these industries, for cosmetic procedures and for UV tanning. The business volume across the world is, is massive, and in the U.S. alone, the increases have been enormous with the rapidly increasing revenue. Cosmetic procedures have doubled in the United States from 7.4 million in 2000 to 14.6 million in 2012. Annually in the U.S. alone, uh, 11 billion in revenues on the cosmetic procedures are made and 2.9 billion, so almost 3 billion on UV tanning, and that's in the U.S. alone. Yet, despite the, the massive size of these industries, there's no centralized registry in the country. So which businesses, how many businesses offer cosmetic procedures or UV tanning, where are they located? We don't have any registry or any convenient databases to be able to answer these questions. 
So what we've done is, as a part of a, a Stripe project is to create a custom database in seven major metropolitan areas of the United States. Businesses offering cosmetic procedures and UV tanning. The research goals for this study are to map the geographic expansion over time in cosmetic procedures offered and the infiltration of other kinds of industries. So outside of the cosmetic surgeon's office, outside of a tanning, a freestanding tanning salon. And then to be able to link these to health indicators in the areas where this expansion is, is happening. So the seven areas across the U.S. we cover from east coast to west coast. We've got south and midwest, the seven major metropolitan areas, including New York and Boston and Miami, Chicago, Dallas, Los Angeles, and Seattle. One of the things we're looking at with this is to see how much are some of these cosmetic procedures being offered in other kinds of businesses, so outside of a cosmetic surgeon's office. So about a half percent of gyms, uh, when we collected these data in the seven metropolitan areas, are offering Botox, collagen, or other kinds of injections at the gym. About 1.5% of beauty salons are offering these procedures, and about 15% of spas have these procedures happening there. What we're planning to do is to, to track this over time, because we've seen a rapid expansion in these industries. We expect the infiltration of other industries to continue. And then another snapshot for the UV tanning results, we see almost 12% of gyms in these major metropolitan areas of the U.S. offer UV tanning. And clearly that's under the cloak of offering health because gyms very much market themselves as being about a place to go for health. Public health initiatives encourage people to go to the gym. Clinicians encourage people to go to the gym. You go there and you can get melanoma um, with their offering of UV tanning, which is essentially what they're doing. Two and a half percent of salons also have tanning beds there. Um, and these are UV, it's not spray-on tanning. When we collected the data, we were differentiating. And then spas, about 6.5%. There are millions and millions of businesses across these seven metropolitan areas. We can't collect data from all of them because we're actually making individual phone calls to businesses to get this information since there is no registry. So what we're doing is a random sample, stratified random sample of businesses in these metro areas by business type. And then we're using methods from environmental sciences to do projection modeling of the spatial distribution of the different kinds of procedures often in, offered in the various businesses. And then where we're going with this through the using the, the methods in, in spatial statist statistics is to be able to project out beyond where we actually had um, observed uh, data points, um, just as they do in environmental sciences and other fields, to be able to um, model where these businesses are, and then that'll allow us to track larger areas with what's happening with the cosmetic procedures and UV tanning businesses. So that is a snapshot of that one, one project that we're doing that's addressing the trigger 1A. They're looking at different aspects of the macro environment, which we will eventually be able to link with health outcomes. Now moving to trigger 1B, for this, uh, this one, as you might remember, is about building the evidentiary base on economic costs. And that requires research on economic, economic questions that have policy relevance. One example of this work uh, is Planet Health. Planet Health is a middle school intervention, Philippa mentioned briefly. Uh, it was designed as a two-year intensive intervention programmed on a middle school curriculum to improve nutrition, physical activity, and to reduce overweight. It was led by my colleague Steve Gortmaker at the Harvard School of Public Health and Karen Peterson and Jean Biecha, who um, originated Planet Health and carried out the original RCT. It has moved through the process of an efficacy uh, RCT, effectiveness RCT in, in an additional 13 schools, a dissemination study in an additional 40 five schools and with this study that focuses on healthful behavior not on obesity not on body dissatisfaction directly 
Planet Health has been found to cut the risk of onset of new disorder weight control behaviors in middle school girls by half. With this, we've seen a preventive effect that was quite substantial over two years carried out in the schools. It also had a preventive effect on obesity in middle school girls participating in the Planet Health schools compared to control schools. Well, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention took note of this and carried out two economic studies of the preventive effects of Planet Health. The CDC's finding were that the cost effectiveness and cost savings made Planet Health um, a very um, valuable program around the obesity prevention. You add into that the additional cost savings resulting from the disorder weight control behavior prevention, and their conclusion is that Planet Health is a fiscally smart use of public money. Now, this is the U.S. CDC being able to say this about Planet Health through their dual economic studies is very helpful information to be able to go to policymakers with. Another economic study from Striped is looking at eating disorder screening in schools. And through a simulation study, we were able to address the question of what could be the cost effectiveness if we had screening rolled out to all high schools, middle schools and high schools across the United States. We don't have that now if we were to have that. Through simulation modeling methods, we were able to come up with an estimate on the savings of quality or quality adjusted life years, which is that a typical measure is used in cost effectiveness analysis and economic analyses. The figure here on its own doesn't necessarily mean much with around 56,000 US dollars per quality gained over 10 years. However, what's important about this figure is that it is very comparable to other kinds of adolescent and young adult screenings that are common and standard across the United States. Uh, so being able to do eating disorder screening will allow us to gain a lot in terms of identifying early cases and before people develop an eating disorder and also um, achieve the same level of benefit as we do from cervical cancer screening or blood pressure screening, which are standard. Another economic study with Striped is looking at data from the Medical Expenditures Panel Survey, which is a nationally representative study in the U.S. US adults. And with this one, we were able to estimate the economic effects of having an eating disorder and other mental health com comorbidity compared to others in the database who didn't have these conditions. The, having an eating disorder and another mental health comorbidity was associated with 2,000 U.S. dollars a greater of annual health care costs. They were half as likely to even be employed, and the annual earnings uh, was 20,000 U.S. dollars lower. Uh, for people who had an eating disorders and a mental health comorbidity. So when we develop uh, further economic studies, this is very important information to have about if we're preventing eating disorders, what we're preventing is also these economic impacts. And a, another economic study from our group, this one again using simulation methods for uh, comparative cost effectiveness. So comparative cost effectiveness is, is a different approach to inform policy and can be very important for uh, policymakers needing to make decisions about which programs to invest in, if you can compare them head-to-head -head using similar methods. So we're in the process of conducting a comparative cost-effectiveness simulation study to compare uh, six preventive approaches that e have either been done or have been proposed in the literature. Planet Health, which I mentioned, screening, eating sort of screenings in schools and clinics, and then co consumer market restrictions. This is a study supported by the U.S. National Eating Disorders Association. Association, and we're grateful for that funding. This study is in progress. We still have a year and a half more of work to do, so stay tuned for our findings from that study. 
So that was, these were some examples from Striped on our economic research with policy relevance. And that was trigger 1B from the three sets of triggers that I showed you. So thinking about practical considerations, that's we're considering how do we operationalize ideas into law or policy. For this, we started with looking at the consumer industries around laxatives, around diet pills, and around dietary supplements marketed for weight loss and muscle building. For this, we always partner with legal scholars, uh, specialists in public health law, and also have brought in a corporate policy research uh, studies on this. We focused on over-the-counter diet pills and laxatives and the dietary supplements. With this work, we have gone through legal analysis to describe what there's precedent for government being able to do to ban sales to minors of these products. There's really no reason minors should ever be using these products, and most of them nobody should be using. Most of them, almost all of them, are not shown to be effective or useful and often are not safe. To move products behind counters, to punish deceptive advertising, to know how to proceed uh, in, in these avenues, we need to know what the legal precedent is in any kind of legal context, whether that's in the U.S. or it's Canadian law or it's, it's uh, English law or <coughs> elsewhere. Um, corporate social responsibility is another area that we're pursuing because there's only so much you can do through uh, government mandates. Um, and government enforcement, what we really need is for corporations to be part of the solution. There's a lot that they will need to do to really clean up the environment, to really make the environment healthier for youth and for people of all ages. But to, to motivate corporate social responsibility, we need a balance. We need to change in the balance of the pressures they experience, whether that's the bottom line pressures or the, the social uh, context and how their products are perceived. And there's different ways to induce voluntary change, collaborating with corporations. So we've also done some of our legal and policy work in the area of cosmetic procedures. We've got two legal research studies, um, one focused on cosmetic breast implants in girls younger than 18 years to describe precedent for how this could be banned or restricted, and then also injection of uh, liquid silicone. Now, this is not legal in the United States, and yet we know that it happens, especially to victimize vulnerable populations who may feel they can't afford cosmetic procedures, so they are more vulnerable to be exploited by people for less money. We'll inject them with liquid silicone, which is incredibly dangerous. So through this work, we work with health law specialists, again, uh, to describe legal precedent uh, that we can draw from other similar concerns and then have specific viable strategies for regulation for the federal government, states, cities, public health departments, and other agencies of government. Another area of our work for practical considerations re relates to the fashion industry. For this work, we've done legal research. One of our papers came out very recently, last December 2015, on um, health and safety of fashion models and precedent for action under U.S. occupational safety and worker protection laws. And there's a lot more that could be done there. And then we also have a study that's ongoing now and being led by Rachel Rogers, um, examining policy implementation. We were conducting interviews with U.S. and French stakeholders on acceptability and feasibility on proposed and new legal changes in France, proposed laws in the U.S. and actual legal changes that are underway in France, because we know that the, the perspectives of end users and the stakeholders who are actually going to bring law into practice have to be considered, or else you'll have uh, major problems with implementation. 
And another area where we've taken up uh, legal and policy research is around the question of photoshopping or digital manipulation of images of models. So it, most recently, the mayor of London, of course, everyone has probably heard, said that he's going to put a ban in, in public areas like public transportation, images that were considered body shaming. And for that, uh, what, uh, what prompted that most directly was an ad for a product that people could buy that was promising weight loss for young women who were very thin to go to the beach and, and achieve an ideal by buying this product. Clearly very body shaming in a lot of ways and also promoting products that nobody should be using. Other countries, France and others, have started to move forward on this and with advances in curtailing deceptive digital manipulation of the images of models bodies. Actually, most of the images we see in the media are digitally manipulated. They are photoshopped, to use the vernacular on that. But a lot of that manipulation is not about what how the body is represented. So these, these efforts are meant to be around the, the body shaming question. In the U.S. legal context, this is actually very difficult to do. We have very strong protections of free speech. It's the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is protecting free speech. Uh, so it would be it's difficult legally to come up with a way to uh, just try to to ban certain kinds of photoshopping and n not expect it's going to be struck down in court as soon as you you get a bill like that out some a law like that out. So what we're working on with legal scholars with with expertise in the First Amendment rights in the U.S. is to find precedent for action on deception, which is illegal. Deceptive ads are illegal, but it's defining them that is the that is the challenge there. And then also other ways for government. To, to provide inducements for positive change, so positive change in ads as opposed to punishing the ads we don't like, but in uh, other ways for government to step in to encourage images that we think are a better representation of the diversity of body sizes and shapes. So that work is on underway. So that wraps up trigger two and some examples of how we address practical considerations in the strike project. So now I want to move to trigger three and the political will. How, where is an issue on the political agenda for voters and policymakers? And for this work, we have many partners out in the community. There's none of this work we can do from the ivory tower. Everything has to be done in partnership with advocacy groups, with community representatives, and with government. Uh, so we've worked with the U.S. National Eating Disorders Association, the Eating Disorders Coalition, in our local area in Massachusetts, the Multi-Service Eating Disorders Association, the Model Alliance, which is a national labor organizing group for professional models, and then government. Uh, strategies include advocates as key informants, as stakeholders in study design, so not we don't go to the advocates after everything is designed, but to include them in the design. Um, of course, they need to be involved in any data interpretation and dissemination plans so that it can be most useful. Um, we work with advocates, uh, sometimes it's to access and to lobby lawmakers to advise on legislation. There's many different avenues. We're also conducting a, a new uh, stakeholder analysis using policymaker software, www.polymap.com. It's free software that helps you bring a systematic approach to doing a stakeholder analysis for policy change and understanding who the players are, what strategies may work, who, what kind of impacts there will be in different sectors. And we are working on a project now around dietary supplements sold for weight loss and muscle building and also diet pills with the goal of having a change in uh, their availability. And at some point, what I'd really like to see is none of these products be legal for minors to buy. Of course, the goal would be that none of them are on the market. That may be a little more elusive, but at least uh, making them restricted by age, like has been done with cigarettes, alcohol, UV tanning, and other kinds of harmful products. 
And then with the translation of strike policy research, we've worked in the area of screening for mental health, uh, screening for eating disorders in schools, in the dietary supplements for weight loss and muscle building, and with the fashion industry and protections for models. With this work uh, related to the dietary supplements, we had a bill that we worked very closely with Representative Kay Kahn from the Massachusetts State Legislature to introduce a bill based on strike legal research. Uh, and that work was in partnership with three community partners, the local eating disorders organization, META, the National Eating Disorders Association, NIDA, and the Eating Disorders Coalition. And together, we were able to get a bill introduced in the Massachusetts State Legislature to ban the sale of dietary supplements for weight loss and muscle building to minors, to move them behind the counter, and to add warnings from the public health department. The bill was introduced. It is not law in Massachusetts yet, but that's the first stage. It, it typically takes many years to get a, a law passed. But that was real progress to see a translation from. We, we saw the problem in the epidemiologic research around these products and eating disorders, body dissatisfaction, and the harmful effects they can have, the products can have, even apart from those other issues. We did the legal research to find avenues that, that were viable within U.S. state legal systems, and then we're able to work with a legislator to get a bill introduced. And that is the pathway we're trying to follow with the following the, the triggers to action. And then a second bill based on our legal research around the fashion industry and approaching it not in terms of the photoshopped images of models, but instead uh, approaching it as an occupational health and safety issue. And this really um, uh, appealed to a California, the state of California, Assembly Member Mark Levine. We worked with him along with our, our community partners, NIDA again, and the Model Alliance this time, to have a bill introduced in the state of California to to better protect the health and labor rights of models working in that state and to address eating disorders head on in terms of health screenings and that kind of work. Again, this is a bill, it is not a law, but it does show how we go from the, the scientific research to the legal research to working with community partners on legislation to get policy change underway. So that wraps up the idea of the way we approach political will in a really pragmatic way. So in conclusion, I would just want to recap some of the main points I covered today. The steps to accelerate progress in the prevention of body dissatisfaction and, and related problems, and I itemized steps that we can take in changing our study designs and in hitting those triggers for policy action. And then I described ways that we can target the macro environment for change. To change the macro environment, we really need policy to change, and we need policy in the, in the legal government context and also policy in the corporate context. And the goal would be to maximize public health impact on problems of body dissatisfaction and all the issues that we care very much about. We need to focus on the potential for rapid translation from the start, involve the end users and policymakers, advocates, and transdisciplinary teams. Move beyond the efficacy RCTs. We've got to get out of that corner. Employ simulation modeling whenever we can. it's applicable, especially in economic studies. It can be helpful in other kinds of decision analysis work that we can do, and then traditional economic studies and the simulation modeling. We need, anytime you're publishing preventive intervention results or clinical interventions, include the costs, and then we can use that in economic an analyses. And I went through the three triggers for policy action, evidentiary base, practical considerations, and political will. And here we get back to what happens when we can do this. What I'm suggesting is that that's when we're going to see change happen, and it's going to happen a lot faster than what we've seen so far in the first 30 years. So I'm going to leave you with a final question. 
which of your own research studies, whether it's a current study or it's on your wish list, something you're hoping to do, you're starting to write a grant for or thinking about that, could generate data likely to result in policy or practice improvement in three to five years? So think about that from your own research or your own wish list. And then how will you make that happen? If you can do this study, how will you make that translation happen to have an effect on policy or practice change in this time frame? And perhaps if we can shift our priorities to policy translation, research, and training 30 years from now, we will finally live in a world where girls and boys alike can grow up at home in their own bodies. Thank you. A big thank you to Professor Bryn Austin for giving us permission to share her wonderful keynote. Coming up on future episodes, we'll be sharing keynote addresses from Dr. Eric Stice, who will be talking about developing and disseminating evidence-based body image interventions, and from Professor Diana Harcourt, who will be talking about visible difference in low-income countries. So keep a listen out for those. Thanks to the Appearance Matters Conference sponsors, the Healing Foundation, the University of the West of England, and the Dove Self-Esteem Project. And thanks to David Intercal for our theme music.